Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 104, From Within. The pressures of the Civil War had informed the Communist Party and its membership on a great number of realities in regards to governing during a crisis. And one of the lessons learned was the necessity of not just winning battles at the front lines, but safeguarding the revolution behind them as well. And that's where the Cheka came in, under the guiding hand of Iron Felix Zhezhinsky and with the determined support of Lenin himself. Due to the multitude of threats, both real and perceived, the secret police were given wide-ranging powers that I've already described in detail. And they weren't a group that were afraid of using those powers either, which is where the trouble for them started once the crisis of the war years started to fade. Early Soviet Russia had witnessed a power struggle waged out in the provinces and cities between the local Soviets, the party, and the Cheka. The party quickly subsumed the Soviets, but the Cheka proved more independent. This led many in the party to begin pushing to have that organization scaled back a little, which wasn't the hardest pitch either given the Cheka's reputation for violence and inducing terror. Turns out that on-the-spot executions and casual brutality didn't win many friends. At the 9th Congress of the Soviets on December 28, 1921, uh, this being distinct from the Congresses of the Communist Party, the Soviets just love their Congresses that much, the Cheka was rebranded as the State Political Directorate, or the GPU following its Russian acronym. They were stripped of most of their powers and reduced to investigating strictly political crimes with no powers of arrest or punishment. But Zhezhinsky wasn't about to let that stand. He and the GPU's leadership had performed admirably in the eyes of Lenin, who wasn't about to let go of so powerful a tool as the secret police. But Soviet Russia being more a dictatorship by committee, Lenin didn't just overrule the Congress of Soviets. Over the course of 1922, he quietly expanded the GPU's powers so that it could again arrest and even kill certain types of suspected criminals, powers that were vague enough that they could be used broadly. That isn't to say the old Cheka was fully back in operation, and in fact the 1920s would be a fairly quiet period for the Soviet Union's secret police, but they were far from toothless in these years. And just as a matter of bookkeeping, once the Soviet Union was formally established in early 1923, the group picked up an extra letter denoting its elevation to being a federal institution, and was henceforth referred to as the OGPU. The main challenge facing the OGPU going into the 20s was that of foreign agents. The whites had been pretty well smashed domestically, and while supporters of the counter-revolution remained, they would pose little threat to the regime without outside aid. The problem was that many whites had fled abroad, where they were taken in by Western nations, sympathetic with their desire to bring down the Soviet government. And while not every state in the West was consistently anti-Soviet at every moment in time, there were all-too-brief gaps where the center-left of those countries came to power and pushed for normalized relations. Well, the conservative establishments of each great power was always uniformly hostile to the communists. And so were the intelligence agencies of those powers as well, notably the UK's. Theirs was probably the most well-developed intelligence apparatus in the world at the time, and their major concern was consistently the USSR. This fixation made sense. As heir to the real estate of the old Russian Empire, the Soviets were positioned to strike south towards India, that corrupting jewel of the British Empire. And in addition to cross-generational paranoias, there were new ones to add as well. 
the Soviet state was far more closed off than its czarist predecessor. Moving about in it and gathering intelligence was far more difficult. If anything, the USSR presented a genuine challenge in the field of intelligence. And the OGPU was more than willing to go toe-to-toe with their foreign competition. To that end, Zhezhinsky created the Foreign Department, or the INO, in December 1920, back when the organization was still the Cheka and would carry over to the OGPU. But as enthusiastic as the group might have been in countering foreign intelligence, they suffered from growing pains. Like all communist departments that were set up, there was a chronic lack of experience as the new regime had to bring in new people who basically learned on the job. It was one thing to torture hapless suspects to gather information, quite another to combat well-trained and experienced intelligence agencies. Luckily for them, the UK was looking to maintain its way-too-big empire on a budget in the post-war years, and the INO's opposite numbers would have to deal with vastly reduced resources with which to work with. It was estimated that between 1 to 2 million Russians had fled the country during and after the Civil War. Lenin was especially paranoid about a white resurgence, and had the INO infiltrate the communities of exiles scattered across the major western capitals. Turned out that those communities were prone to infighting and the same cliquish behavior that had lost them the war in the first place. Of even greater effect were OGPU entrapment operations. The INO and the Soviets in general were still a little hesitant so early in their existences to go out into the world and simply take out their enemies on foreign soil, so the playbook became thinking of ways to lure the whites back to Russia. The most effective means was establishing fake anti-communist underground groups. The whites weren't complete idiots, so this wasn't as easy as putting out ads in the paper that resistance groups were seeking new applicants. Instead, the OGPU would either get an agent established in a position of trust, or pick up a white agent while they were stooping around inside the USSR and turn them over to their cause as a double agent. A pair of dramatic examples were the syndicate and trust operations. These targeted a man named Boris Zavinkov, who had been a member of the old SR combat organization. He had fled Russia and set up a small force of Russian emigres to fight on the side of the Poles during the Bolshevik invasion of 1920. From there, he established a group called the People's Union for Defense of Country and Freedom. The mission statement of the group was intelligence gathering and rebellion plotting. Too bad for them, though. The OGPU had them infiltrated by August 1921. 44 members of the group were arrested in the Soviet Union, where show trials and executions soon followed. This wrapped up the syndicate part of the operation, and the more long-term trust operation followed. This stage was preoccupied with setting up a fake resistance group, the Monarchist Union of Central Russia, or the MOR. Firstly, I think the name was a little much, but it produced results. It wasn't intended specifically for Zavonikov, but the front did manage to lure him back all the same. Despite his own network being dismantled, Savinkov wanted to stay in the game and was convinced by a secret INO agent to send one of his subordinates to Moscow to meet with this new group. The subordinate was promptly picked up and immediately sold his boss out, telling him the coast was clear to re-enter Russia to have a sit-down. Savinkov was immediately picked up in August 1923 and promptly subjected to a show trial and jailed. He was unknowingly interrogated by his sailmate into revealing everything he knew about anti-Bolshevik operations at the time. He thought he had made a friend. In fact, he was talking to an OGPU agent, given a long-term assignment to pose as a prisoner and find out what he knew. 
Once that was wrapped up eight months later, he was pushed out of a prison window. Operation Trust also proved useful in settling some old scores. Back in episode 96, I covered an early plot by the West to destabilize the Bolshevik government spearheaded by Robert Lockhart. While Lockhart was caught and later released in a prisoner exchange, one of his co-conspirators, Sidney Riley, managed to escape. The Soviets were very interested in finding a way to getting him back into the country, and the job of luring him back was helped by the man's regrets with how things in Russia had gone back in 1918, and he personally wanted to find out if his old friends from those days were still alive. Plus, he was the kind of guy who had lived in the shadows his entire life and did the whole globe-trotting spy thing. That he was still alive probably made him think he could stroll into the Soviet Union and make it back out. He got in contact with the MOR, though, and like Savinkov, was immediately picked up. For all his self-confidence, he broke immediately once caught and promised to tell Zhezhinsky everything he knew. It didn't save him, as he was taken into some woods outside of Moscow and shot in the back of the head. His body was brought back to Lubyanka and put on display so the OGPU staff could look at it and gloat. But as the OGPU gained more experience in the subterfuge game, there continued to be upsets. The most egregious bungling occurred in 1927 when Soviet intelligence operations were compromised in eight countries. The common thread that comprised the efforts was because the INO agents on the ground were also acting as official members of Soviet embassies and consulates, which meant they were easily picked out once it became clear they might be up to something, because they were always under watch. The revelation of communist spying set up across Eurasia set off alarm bells in the West. It also occurred in the spring of 1927, right when Chiang Kai-shek and the KMT had violently dissolved their alliance with the Soviets and the CPC. Recall from the China episodes that the Manchurian warlord Zheng Zhuolin, who controlled Beijing at the time, took control of the Soviet embassy there and publicly revealed evidence of their conspiracies. This directly led to the conservative British government breaking relations completely with the USSR, which set the communists into a panic that there would be a war. This feeling wasn't helped by information coming from Japan. That country remarkably utilized next to no security measures, and correspondence coming from Manchuria back to the home islands was delivered via the Chinese Postal Service. The Chinese postal workers on the Soviet payroll delivered the news of the growing desire among Japanese elites for expansion, even as their own official policy was peaceful relations with China and focusing on economic penetration. Security was lax even in occupied Korea, where an interpreter managed to offer up a memo by Prime Minister Tanaka, who you might remember as the pragmatic general-turned-politician of the Sayukai. The memo basically predicted that as Japan expanded into China and Mongolia, that war with the Soviets was inevitable. This spooked the hell out of the Russians, as their 1927 nightmare scenario was an alliance of smaller nations like Poland, Finland, and Romania in the West, attacking them at the same time as the Japanese in the East, all with the backing of the UK. While these fears were overblown and no invasions materialized, the INO had to take a different tact in managing its agents. They had to keep a lower profile and switch over to operatives with no connections to the Soviet diplomatic stations, which meant that far, far more detailed covers had to be invented. This was a process that took years and had to be started from scratch. So in the interim, the INO had to rely on what were basically private contractors who were outside Soviet channels but willing to work with them. 
This was unreliable as hell and led to the INO being taken for a ride on multiple occasions by spies who claimed results but were faking intelligence every step of the way for their own personal profit. This approach was wound down as quickly as possible, but it would only be well into the 30s that the Soviets would have built up cadres of newly trained and thoroughly professional spies. 1927 was also the year when Stalin's rise to power was rapidly nearing its completion. He was already by that time the most powerful man in the country, and his first couple waves of rivals had been defanged. But his power wasn't secure just yet, or at least it wasn't secured to his liking. This is where we start really getting into why I'm spending so much time on the Soviet security apparatus, how it played a prominent and bloody role in securing Stalin's rule over the USSR. Felix Szerzhinsky was not a servant of Stalin's per se. He remained an ally pretty much every step of the way until his death in July 1926, but Stalin treated him with a light touch that was oftentimes lacking with his other colleagues. Probably because while Stalin was the most individually powerful man in the party, all his comrades each had their own little turf. And with Szerzhinsky running the OGPU, Stalin wanted to stay on his good side. This worked for Szerzhinsky as he had gotten on well with Stalin since the Civil War years, and the general secretary had always backed having a strong security apparatus. This productive working relationship bore fruit as the OGPU began tapping the phone lines of members of the various oppositions within the Communist Party that had tried to stand up to Stalin and his allies. The surveillance was kept at just that at first, as Szerzhinsky was not terribly interested in getting sucked into inter-party squabbles. In fact, he quite despised the dysfunction and disunity growing in the party. And while Stalin was behind much of that conflict, he always managed to keep himself aloof and let his allies do the attacking, giving him the air of an uncommitted observer. Hence, his old partner, Szerzhinsky, seeing him as a lesser evil. But any checks on the OGPU's activities would be removed once Iron Felix had died. The man had been severely overworked since the October Revolution, and by July 1926 was running both the OGPU and the Supreme Council of the National Economy, both very big jobs and which kept him in the office for almost a decade. He barely saw his family, but his commitment was unshakable and he pressed on even as his health fell apart. His attempts to resign were declined by Stalin, who was willing to keep him at his post until he dropped dead, which he did in July 1926, suffering a heart attack while giving a speech at a Central Committee conference. He was attacking dissenters in the party when he was hit with the attack, was barely able to finish, and after being helped out of the hall, he tried to make it back to his apartment, which, to be fair, was only a couple blocks away from the meeting place. He didn't make it, and just dropped dead in the street. He was replaced officially with a man named Vyacheslav Menjinsky. Menjinsky was no friend of Stalin's, but was also far less powerful than Iron Felix had been, and had a more passive personality to boot. Trotsky described him as a shadow of a man, colorless and with no distinct personality. He also had angina, which is a symptom of heart disease, which is probably indicative of something that two OGPU heads in a row had heart problems, almost as if having one in that line of work was a liability. By April 1929, he would suffer a heart attack that would mostly put him out of commission, but even before then, his ailment and passive nature meant that true power in the OGPU passed to more aggressive hands. Enter Genrik Yagoda, the deputy chairman of the OGPU. 
Yagoda is going to be the first of three secret police chiefs to serve Stalin, and like his successors, he was a miserable human being. Granted, part of that comes from denunciations from Stalin, who purged him, as well as party officials who found his work distasteful. But even taking into account that winners write the history books, he was a real piece of work. He was a cruel and violent man, and his rise through the ranks did the usual corruption thing where he felt he could throw the weight of his power around with impunity. Which would get him into trouble, as in the 30s he fell in love with a woman named Tomosha, who just so happened to be married to Max Gorky, son of Maxim. He would drop in on their household while Max was away, and threaten Tomosha not to displease so powerful a man as he. Max would die, officially of influenza in 1934. It was widely suspected that Yagoda had the family doctors make sure he didn't recover. Anyway, that's kind of the measure of the man we're dealing with here. However, to his bosses, he was simply an ambitious and hard-working underling. Nothing to be concerned about at first. His relationship with Stalin was a bit testier than those that came after him, though. Politically, he was drawn to Bukharin and the right wing of the party, an association that would follow him even after Bukharin fell out of favor. Stalin even tried to use his position as general secretary to appoint another deputy chairman of the OGPU, but Yagoda had enough pull with the rank and file that his supposed rival was marginalized from day one in the organization. And despite moves like that, Yagoda was an opportunist first and foremost, and always went with the option that gave him more personal power. So, when the time came to make a decision about his future, he opted to work with Stalin. With being an operative word, as he made certain to demarcate the OGPU as his turf, which wasn't a sustainable position long term, but also meant he had a lot more freedom of action than others in the Soviet leadership for a little while. And by a little while, I mean until 1936. Which is all to say that Yagoda had a lot fewer scruples than Ole Iron Felix. Surveillance on Stalin's political enemies, and even his allies, became commonplace. Members of the various opposition groups that feebly rose against the general secretary could look forward to OGPU harassment and even detainment. It didn't reach the level that it would in the 30s, but for the more open years of the 20s, it was a dispiriting turn. Doubly so that much of the attention was directed to within the Communist Party itself. Having started to run out of immigrate targets, Stalin's paranoia allowed for the OGPU to find an extended purpose policing everyone else for subversion. And that went double for non-party members, too. On March 10, 1928, news broke that the OGPU had smashed up a plot to sabotage a mining operation in the small town of Shakti, the town name being a play on mine shafts in Russian. The city itself and the alleged plot were not the biggest possible targets for attempted sabotage, but the setting was adjacent to the Donbass region, which was one of the biggest possible targets for sabotage. Back then, and even up to present day, the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine was notable for huge deposits of both coal and iron ore, basically the two ingredients for a proper steel industry, meaning the area was very big into the mining economy. The alleged plot was supposedly a bunch of engineers who were still loyal to the exiled mine owners and who had decided to sabotage one of the mines which was a clever bit of us-versus-them class politics in play, as the engineers, due to their education and having a more planning-oriented job than the actual miners who did the digging, could be portrayed as anti-proletarian. The sabotage was referred to as an attempt at wrecking the mine, which, hey, is where the term wrecker started getting thrown around a lot. The investigation was overseen by North Caucasus OGPU boss Yevim Yevdokimov, 
an ethnic Russian who had grown up in the ass end of Kazakhstan. Yevdokimov had the dubious privilege of getting FaceTime with Stalin on account of the general secretary taking vacations to his native Georgia. Yevdokimov correctly surmised the best way to get ahead was to offer up victories to Stalin. He first attempted to quote-unquote uncover a plot in the city of Vladikavkaz, a city in the north-central Caucasus Mountains. He tried to link 80-odd people to activities on behalf of the Whites. The effort didn't really go anywhere, but he made enough noise pushing the danger of foreign-backed subterfuge that he got Stalin's attention. It didn't hurt either that his efforts took place over 1927, just as the war panic I mentioned earlier was in full swing. Undeterred by that investigation not really going anywhere, Yevdokimov set his sights on Shakti. How this particular town came to his attentions, I have no idea, but he claimed to have intercepted letters addressed to some of the mining engineers from outside the USSR. When he presented them to Menjinsky, his superior pointed out the letters didn't contain anything they could act on, even by, you know, the loosest of OGPU standards. Yevdokimov countered by saying there was super-secret engineer code in the letters that could be deciphered. Menjinsky, probably unconvinced, told him he had two weeks to break the code or drop the subject. Yevdokimov instead went above his boss and went straight to Stalin. Stalin, who by this time was gearing up for his first five-year plan and the launching of a new class struggle, accepted the assertion that the letters were damning at complete face value and authorized the arrest of the engineers. Stalin was a smart guy. He knew there wasn't anything to the case, but as the last days of the NEP came to a close and with his power reaching a critical mass, Stalin could afford to flex a little and a big priority for him was a public spectacle to send a message to the whole nation that the listless, unfocused years of the NEP were going to start winding down. Class struggle was back on the menu. The humdrum industrial accidents stemming from faulty equipment, drunkenness on the job, and indifferent management was spun off as a far-reaching plot controlled by such locales as Warsaw, Berlin, and Paris. 50 Russians, including 35 engineers, with the rest being technicians or mechanics, and also five very unfortunate Germans, were rounded up and subjected to a prolonged show trial starting in May. The trial opened in the Moscow House of Trade Unions, formerly the Nobles Club, and it lived up to the old name as the proceedings unfolded within palatial surroundings. Every session of the trial was packed in with a new working-class audience, and it was reported that over 100,000 Moscovites bore witness to the trial. Most of the defendants had the good sense to roll over and plead guilty, but for the doomed few who thought they were enduring a real trial, well, it was reported to not go too well for them. The prosecution would hurl accusations of treasons so astounding that the defendant would stumble through a panic denial before being yelled at by the judge and then subjected to accusations of lying by the prosecution. The berating would go on until the defendant looked around at the hand-picked audience, enjoying the class enemy getting their comeuppance, and decided that arguing was pointless. The trial didn't come without pitfalls for Stalin, however. First and foremost was the practical reality that Russia didn't have a whole lot of technical specialists. The entire Soviet coal industry had only 1,100 engineers, so they were putting on trial a statistically significant percentage of their own talent pool. The trial also predictably set off a wave of panic among engineers and technical specialists, who might not have been accused of anything, but figured they might be next on the chopping block. All of a sudden, too, in schools, being an engineer wasn't exactly the most attractive job option. 
there were very real fears that that entire professional group would try and leave the country en masse. The panic got bad enough that Kubyshev, one of Stalin's henchmen who ran the Committee of the National Economy, had to make public declarations reassuring the country that this wasn't the start of a campaign against technical specialists. The arrest of the Germans that I mentioned also caused an international incident. The Soviets had entered negotiations for a new trade agreement with the Germans, which included Germany providing massive loans to fund the purchase of modern industrial equipment. Which, fun little side note, keep in mind this was the start of 1928. Those loans the Germans were planning on providing were being made available because the United States was pumping money into the German economy as a result of the Dawes Plan that we covered way back in episode 29. They were effectively going to loan the Soviets part of their own loan money. That arrangement, though, came to naught, as the Germans were not terribly thrilled about some of their nationals being arrested. On March 15th, just five days after the arrests, they suspended the new trade talks. Quickly, two of the Germans were released, with one being let go because he swore to the OGPU he could deliver them a group of Russian whites back in Berlin, although that was a big lie that nevertheless got him back home safely. Three others, though, were held in detention and cut off from contact from German diplomatic staff. Some German firms began to pull out of the Soviet Union. Luckily for Stalin, one of the bigger firms, which was also the employer of the arrested men, AEG, opted to keep doing business in the Soviet Union, deeming the profits too good to pass up. The ultimate results of the trial were not as uniform as the show trials during the 30s. Eleven defendants were sentenced to death, with six of those being commuted in return for them confessing. Thirty-four were given prison sentences, four of them suspended sentences, and four were acquitted entirely. Although two of the acquittals and one suspended sentence were actually handed to the trio of Germans, with one also being convicted of bribery. The trial was the opening round to a new struggle in society launched by Stalin, and the OGPU and its future incarnations would be one of his biggest tools to enforce his vision. Whereas before, the secret police had maintained a degree of independence, with Stalin increasingly being the only leader in town, the organization's members evolved with the times and joined the winning side. They would become the dictators' enforcers and executioners, and their activities would return to the terror and brutality of their original Czechist days. And that's where I'll be leaving the secret police for this season, but they'll be getting a lot of attention during the next. And speaking of that winning team, I think I am long overdue to be covering the rise of the one, and thankfully only, Joseph Stalin. I'm going to be doing things a little differently, and instead of doing the bio episodes after the main miniseries, I'm going to drop them right in before the end. This is because Stalin's biography, right where I'd normally leave off, is just as he starts taking out his former comrades one by one after Lenin's death. So I'm just going to tell the whole sordid tale up to 1928 in sequence. Join me for that next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Music